0: Knocking over the music stand and not turning on the microphone, not good ways to start. I'll try it again. Good morning. Uh, I'm Bill Cayley, one of the elders at the bridge. Uh, Pastor Jerry is gone again this week. Uh, he and Sue are in California on vacation, and we'll be back, uh, Lord willing, next week. So I appreciate the chance to uh, lead us in exploring God's word together. We'll be in primarily in the book of Job. Was that me? Okay, we're all right. Um, We'll be primarily in the book of Job. If you look in the outline in the bulletin, you'll see we'll be exploring a few other uh, parts of Scripture as well. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, I think the ushers are in back with uh, Bibles. If you need a Bible, you could just raise your hands. I think we're okay. All right. Uh, Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to come together this morning uh, to worship and to explore your word. I pray that you'll guide us in our reading and our thinking, and pray that uh, you'll guide me in speaking. That what I share will be from you, in your Son's name, Amen. Well, the first thing I remember hearing was that there'd been a tornado. That it was a big one, with a lot of damage, and we didn't know how bad it had been. But this was not from a newscast yesterday or the last couple of weeks. This was when I was in eighth grade and our family was traveling to Texas for Easter. Um, we were on the airplane to Texas, and my folks told us there had been a tornado in Wichita Falls, which is where my grandmother lived, and where we were traveling to. And my recollection, my folks are here today, which I appreciate, so you can fact-check this with them afterwards if my eighth grade memory isn't exactly right these many years later. <laughs> My recollection is the first thing I heard about this was on the airplane. First thing they knew about it was the night before, as they were packing. They hadn't been watching the news because we were busy getting ready for the trip. And my dad's parents called from New York and said, Well, is everyone okay? I said, What do you mean? Well, is everyone okay with a tornado in Texas? They didn't find out much more the night before. We Went ahead with the trip, got on the plane the next day, um, had the joy of flying through the turbulence that was part of the after effect of the tornado uh, the next morning en route from Minneapolis to Texas, um, and arrived in Wichita Falls for a very different Easter than what we had planned. Uh, I can't tell you what we had for Easter dinner that year. I don't remember if or where we hunted Easter eggs. I don't remember much about Easter per se, but I can remember very clearly uh, serving drinks, at serving soda at the uh, Red Cross emergency shelter, the, the Red Cross relief station. And I can remember helping a few different friends dig through the rubble that was left in their house. Um, I can remember finding this tape measure, which uh, was from an American Bar Association meeting in 1970. One of the friends that we were helping dig out was a, a judge, and his home had been flattened and gave this to me as a souvenir, so an interesting souvenir these many years later. Um, so when we heard about the F5 tornado in uh, Moore, Oklahoma a few weeks ago, did it bring back a lot of strong memories? Absolutely it did. Uh, we had not been there for the tornado, but had seen the after-effects less, uh, less than 24 hours later, I think. Um, so, yeah, it brought back a lot of strong memories and a lot of strong feelings. And when things like this happen, when we see these happen to someone else... Often our first impulse is, what can I do? How can I help? Can I do something to help these people out, to help help make the situation better? After that, or if we've been through that, we often end up asking other questions. Why did this happen? Why did it happen now? Or why did it happen to me? And we probably all, sooner or later, would end up asking, well, why me, and why not someone else? Well, This morning we're going to explore some of what the Bible has to say to questions like these. I'm not saying we're going to find specific answers to those questions, but we want to explore what the Bible says, and we're going to start with a man named Job. Job is probably not one of the more familiar books of the Bible for most of us. Um, I will tell you when I pick up the Bible to start reading a new book, Job is rarely where I start. So maybe you're familiar with Job, maybe not, but we'll we'll get to know Job and his situation a little bit better this morning. Uh, As to who Job was, there are a few things that we know, but there are also some things that we don't know about about him from the Bible. We know from chapter 1 that he lived in the land of Uz, we know that he feared God, we know he was wealthy, we also know that his children liked to party. But a bit strangely for the Bible, we don't know anything about his parents, his relatives, or any of his other descendants. Also strangely for the Old Testament, which documents so much historical detail to put things in context, we don't even know exactly where he lived or exactly, er, sorry, exactly when he lived or what king he lived under. But we do know that he suffered mightily and how he faced that suffering is, what, is some of what we're going to look at today. So first we'll meet Job. Job chapter 1, and I'm, I'll be reading the bulk of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Job 1, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep. He owned 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man of all the peoples of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would... Invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Like I said, his children liked to party. Uh, When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would would send them and have them purified, and early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. He was pretty faithful. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also with them. The Lord said to Satan, "'Where have you come from?' Satan answered the Lord, "'From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. "'Then the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job? "'There is no one on earth like him. "'He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. "'Does Job fear God for nothing?' Satan replied. "'Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? "'You have blessed the work of his hands "'so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land.' But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you, curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wines at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came uh, to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, "'Where have you come from?' Satan answered the Lord, "'From roaming through the the earth and going back and forth in it. "'Then the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. "'He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, "'and he still maintains his integrity, "'even though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. "'Skin for skin,' Satan replied, "'a man will give all he has for his own life, "'but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, "'and he will surely curse you to his face.' The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. And then much of the rest of the book of Job goes on to tell us about the conversations between Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and Job as they talked about what had happened, talked about Job's reactions and their attempts to comfort him. We're not going to read the next uh, 35 books, but just to summarize, the next thing Job does is he curses the day of his birth. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, "'May the day of my birth perish.'" and the night that it was said a boy is born that day may it turn to darkness and may god above not care about it may no light shine upon it he curses his day of birth he recounts to his friends over and over again the anguish he was facing he cries out to god for explanations for what had happened in verse uh, sorry chapter 10 verses 1 to 3 i loathe my very life therefore i will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul i will say to god do not condemn me, but tell, you, tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? How many of us have had feelings like that in our heart when things seem to be falling apart around us? Job's friends try to comfort him. First, they try to justify God. They try to explain to Job how this might have been part of God's plan or how, how God is sovereign and God is still taking care of him. They criticize Job for questioning. They say, God's in charge. How can you question him? Then they go in maybe what Job probably felt was a less helpful direction. Um, Chapter 22, verses 5 and 6, they say to Job, Is not your wickedness great? Are Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. They're pointing out to Job things that maybe he had done, maybe he had sinned, and this was all his fault. This is just the repayment for his sins. They also try comforting Job, saying, Well, you know, God is mysterious. We don't know God's ways. The more one reads the book of Job, let's see, am I caught up to where I should be? Yes. The more one reads the book of Job, I think the more familiar it sounds. Job may have lived in a long time ago in a land a long ways away. He'd suffered some great calamities. Maybe not the same calamities that we face, but his life was certainly not short on suffering. We haven't faced the same calamities that Job has faced, but even among our church family. We've had many people who've faced trials, who faced suffering, who faced loss. We've, had, we've seen things in the news about the bombings at the Boston Marathon, the tornadoes in Texas and Oklahoma. The family who's, who was in the newspaper a couple of weeks ago, they were out of town on vacation. Their house blew up, no explanation. We've had people in our church family who've had financial problems, who've faced uh, the death of family members, who've had family problems, who've had uh, illness, unexpected job challenges. We've certainly had our own share of calamities and suffering just within our, within our congregation. When Job faced disaster after disaster, he tried to figure out what was going on. He cried out to God. He talked with his friends. His friends talked with him. There were many different explanations proposed or thrown out as far as what could have happened. Why did this happen? Was it Job's fault? Was it some was it God's plan? Why why, when Job was so righteous, did he have all this suffering? And I think we're the same way. When we face suffering or we face calamity or we face disaster, we try to figure things out. We try to come up with some sort of explanation. If you read enough, you'll find all sorts of different lists of explanations or reasons that people come up with to explain suffering. We're not not going to go through an exhaustive list today, but a few that I think are pretty common are, one answer to suffering is to blame someone. Maybe we blame ourselves. It's my fault. I had it coming. In some way, I brought this on myself. We tell people it's good to take responsibility for things, but when someone's suffering, talking about how this is your fault, this is your responsibility, may not be the most helpful most encouraging, or maybe not even the, the most accurate way to go. It's certainly a tempting direction for people who are, who are dealing with depression uh, and already feeling down on themselves. People in that situation certainly have an easy time going there. If you're already f- dealing with feelings of worthlessness or guilt or lack of self-confidence and you face a disaster or calamity, it's easy to feel that, well, this is just one more thing – I'm worthless. I brought this on myself. And there are times where, at least in part, that could be true. There are, we do pay the consequences for our own actions. Just as a very simple example, I think of many years ago when I was driving to work and I came across an accident at a four-way stop. Uh, sorry, it wasn't a four-way stop, which is the problem. I came across an accident at a stop sign. Uh, someone that I knew had been driving along on their way to Bible study, of all places, Thinking about something else, didn't see the stop sign, and unfor- like I said, unfortunately, it was not a four-way stop. So my friend not only totaled his car, he totaled the car that he ran into as he went through the four-way stop, or went through the two-way stop. I'll get it right eventually. Um, so was it his fault? Yes, he should have been paying attention. But did he have it coming? Was he more sinful than someone else, and that's what caused him to have this, have this, have this accident? I don't think so. And would dwelling on Gosh, what could you have done better? Would that have been the best way to comfort him at that time? Probably not. In terms of blaming people, sometimes we blame someone else because it always does feel better if something bad is someone else's fault. Uh, it's, It's much nicer when we can say, well, this wasn't, I didn't do this. This is something else that someone caused to happen to me. It can feel good to blame your problems maybe on someone distant, you know, blame the politicians, blame the president, blame uh, blame whoever, blame the economy, blame a classmate, blame a co-worker, maybe even blame a family member. That can feel good, but I'm not sure that's always the most helpful. Um, there are times where I, and there are times when it can be true, it may be someone else's fault. Uh, another example is if we think of If someone's injured or or something happens in a drunk driving accident, is that the responsibility of the person who was drunk while they were driving? Yes, it was. But but does that mean that someone else's sin is is being repaid on, on the other person? I don't think so. We also know in terms of dealing with loss or difficulty, the more that someone else puts the responsibility somewhere else, the less able they are to actually cope and move forward. So... Blaming someone else, maybe someone else is or isn't responsible for part of a calamity, but the more we focus the blame somewhere else, the less helpful it is for us in terms of moving on or, or having healing. And I think it's also important for us to realize that Jesus himself challenges the blame approach. I think we have a very easy time trying to find fault or... Place blame for something bad that happens. It's it's my fault. I had it coming, it's someone else's fault. Their sin is coming down in my head. In Luke uh, chapter 13, Jesus is debating with the Pharisees uh, about where exactly the responsibility for sin lies and where and, and how sin works. Um, and this is this is actually one of those passages of the New Testament that I like for a little bit different reason because it's it's one of those things that gives you a snapshot of. Sort of what everyday li- everyday life was like in Jesus' time. It's almost like Jesus is talking about uh, this, the morning newspaper or last night's news report. Jesus, or sorry, Luke 13, four to 5. Jesus says as he's talking with the Pharisees about the nature of sin and the nature of when bad things happen. He says, "Or you know th- those eighteen people who died when the tower in Salome fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no." He's talking with the Pharisees about something bad that had happened. It was in the news. No, it wasn't in the newspaper. It wasn't on the 10 o'clock news, but obviously it was being talked about. There had been a local disaster, and, people, and Jesus says to the Pharisees, was that because you know, someone else sinned or because of their sin that they were then being punished by this tower falling on them? He says no. So Jesus himself challenges the blame approach as a way to explain all of sin or all of bad things. Sometimes when bad things happen, we might attribute it to not being faithful or righteous or forgiving enough. The beginning of the book of Job says that Job was a righteous man, and as his friends are talking with him, there are times where they say, well, maybe you weren't righteous enough. There are plenty of calls in the Bible for us to be, to be righteous, to, li- to live faithfully according to God's word. Th- there are plenty of descriptions of things that it's good for us to do in our life, in the book of Romans Paul teaches that the wages of sin is death so we're called to be righteous sin brings death so stands to reason if i'm not being righteous enough then well that's why bad things are happening to me there are many examples in scripture of times where people are praised for their faith but we can't either we can't turn that around and say either that there's a direct line between sin and all suffering uh, in Matthew 5:45 uh, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, says that God causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. Just because you're unrighteous doesn't mean that God always causes bad things. We all, all we have to do is look around in our daily life to see that. And just because you're righteous doesn't mean that you always have good things. Once again, you can't draw a direct line from goodness, righteousness, faithfulness, or personal responsibility to individual calamities, sins, disasters, or whatever another explanation maybe we another explanation that we sometimes uh, use for explaining how things happen and we sometimes apply it to calamities, disasters the suffering is well it was part of God's plan, and there certainly are parts of scripture that seem to uh, seem to give validity to that approach to saying, well This happened because it was part of God's divine plan. After all, um, if we look back at the beginning of the book of Job, at least in in Job's case, God permitted Satan to test Job. God permitted the calamities that that happened to Job. Romans 8.28, Paul teaches, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Well, that would certainly seem to say that Anything that happens, at least for those who trust in God, anything that happens is for good and according to God's purpose. And that may work. I I think we can certainly affirm that that's true if we step back and say that we trust that God is in charge and that God is sovereign and that God is in charge of the world. But that's not the same thing as saying that we understand how that works. If someone's suffering, and we say, well, and our first response is to say, well, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, that at the best sounds like times that my dad would tell me when I was younger, well, this is good for your character. It builds character. <laughs> and my usual response to something like that is, well, I've got enough character already. Thank you. I don't think I need any more. If we try to, if we... If we, we use Romans 8.28 to comfort someone who's suffering, I know that you're suffering, but we know that in all things God works for the good of all, those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. At the best, that sounds like we don't understand what that person's going through. It's one thing for the scripture to teach that God works for good in all things. It's entirely different for us to try to think that we have the ability or the responsibility or the wisdom or the insight to connect the dots and say we can understand how God's plan works. To take another example, I have a good friend who a couple of years ago was diagnosed with a pretty severe form of cancer. Uh, he, initially, he was successfully treated. He's now had a relapse, but in thanks to the wonders of Facebook and the Internet and everything, uh, uh, a, another friend of ours we've been out of touch with for many, many years, once he learned of the relapse, he's been back in touch with my first friend who had the cancer, and they've actually reestablished regular communication. I think it's wonderful that that relationship is being rebuilt. I think that's certainly a blessing that has come out of the bad thing of my friend having cancer. Does that mean that the whole reason my friend had his cancer and then was treated and now has a relapse... Was that just because that was going to lead to the blessing of rebuilding a relationship? There's absolutely no way that I would, that I would teach or say that or say that I, you know, I, that I think God's plan was that all this disastrous stuff happened to my friend just to, re, just to reconnect that friendship. It's certainly a blessing that's come out of the bad stuff, but it would be incredibly presumptuous of me to say, well, I know that that's what God's plan was in that situation, we know that God has a plan. We know that Romans 8 teaches that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to God's purpose. We know that God works for the good of th- works for uh, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. It doesn't say we know how God works for good in all things. So whether we talk about blaming someone, myself, or someone else when bad things happen, or attribute it to, attributing it to not being faithful enough, not being righteous enough, or attribute it to God's plan, in any of those, using any of those explanations as an answer to suffering, those are our explanations. Those are our attempts to make sense out of things, which is exactly what Job's friends were doing. Job's friends were trying to come up with explanations. When we face suffering or bad things or calamities, we try to come up with explanations as a way to put things together, as a way to make sense. But the problem with any of these explanations is that there are explanations. They're not. We, they're, there are explanations. They're not necessarily God's plan or our insider or understanding of what God's mind is. Isaiah 55, uh, 9. The prophet writes, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways... Sorry, Isaiah is quoting God. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, or God's ways, higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Yes, God is sovereign and in control. No, we do not understand all the ins and outs of God's ways and God's thoughts. Coming back to Job, if we move to the end of the book of Job, like I said, I'm not reading the entire thing, if we move to the end of the book of Job, we find how Job had his questions whoops, sorry, too far, okay, there was one passage I meant to put up that that I forgot, so if we move towards the end of the book of Job, Job chapter 38, we find how Job, I'll say how he got, had his questions addressed. I won't say how he had his questions answered. If, if you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, there's a, a, a bit in the movie where uh, Forrest and Lieutenant Dan are off on their ship boat, and they're not having any success, and Lieutenant Dan is up on, the, up on the mast berating God for all sorts of things, and then Forrest says, and then God showed up as a hurricane rolls in and then the movie goes on from there. This is, I I always think of that bit of of Forrest Gump when I read this part of Job, because in Job 38, God shows up. After about 35 chapters of Job and his friends trying to figure out God, trying to understand God, Job's friends, sometimes sensitively, sometimes a bit insensitively, trying to help Job work through his suffering, we come to to chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together? And the angels shouted for joy. God comes to Job and says, Do you really understand who I am and what I've done? Moving ahead through the next couple of chapters, Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Or, who, or do you watch when the doe bears are fawn? Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Look at the behemoth which I made along, along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. He um, goes on and on. Can you pull in the le- Leviathan, the whale, with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? For three chapters, God goes on and recites all the things that he has done or that he can do and he keeps coming back to Job. He keep, keeps coming back to Job. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. And then we come to Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my, knowledge, my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question, and you will answer me. Job replies, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. People often talk about Job's patience, having the patience of Job. I don't think this book is about Job's patience. I think it's about Job's faith and about his finding new faith or at least new depth to his faith. Job had been beset by calamity and disaster. He questioned God. He thought he understood God. God shows up. And Job says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Once once Job meets God face to face, he realizes how small his understanding was, how sovereign God was, and how far beyond his understanding God is. Do you have an experience of meeting God in this way? Hopefully most of us pray regularly, but I can't say I've had this type of encounter Frequently or very often at all, but when I read when I read this part of the end of Job, it takes me back uh, not quite to eighth grade, uh, but it takes me back to college. I had been in an university Bible study, and my friends and I loved to talk about theology and debate theology and try to understand things. And after one late night Bible study, I was walking across campus. It was probably January, because it was well below zero, cloudless sky, I think the moon was out, maybe not not. stars, up in the sky, bitter cold, as I was walking across campus after a Bible study, I was looking up at the sky thinking about how big the universe is, and what it really means to say that we know and trust the God who made all of this. It's so one thing to say that we think we know or understand God when we're sitting around in a comfy room in a Bible study, hashing out our ideas and talking about the ins and outs of this verse. But when you're looking up into the night sky and you really cannot see the end, and we say, the God who made all that is who we believe in and who we trust. I haven't met God in a storm or a hurricane, but that that experience is what always comes to me when I think of the end of Job 42, or this part of Job 42. My, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job faced a bunch of calamities. We've faced, in our lives and just among our congregation, we have faced uh, plenty of challenges, calamities, disasters, hard times, suffering. We've talked about some ways that people try to answer suffering or answer disaster or calamity, but I think the key to approaching things like that is not necessarily finding answers, but really knowing where we place our faith. Job found the answer when God showed up. My, eye, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He met God face to face and realized anew who God was, where he was placing his faith, how far beyond his comprehension God was. For us, on this side of the New Testament, we can know God even more fully. We we know even more about where we place our faith in the one who's in charge of the universe. We get a little bit of a foretaste of this. uh, There's a little bit of a foretaste of this in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, where the prophet is talking about looking ahead towards the Messiah, Surely he took our pain and our suffering, Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he, the Messiah who was to come, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And we see this even more in probably one of the most familiar New Testament passages, John 3.16. Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think often when we read or hear or talk about John 3.16, we tend to think about, at least I tend to think about the latter part of the verse. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Yes, okay, I know that we need to trust Jesus to go to heaven. Jesus is the key to knowing God, etc., etc., But don't forget about the first part of the verse. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God didn't give us answers. God gave us Jesus. God gave his one and only son, the one who, according to Isaiah, uh, was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds, we are healed. We don't just worship a distant God. We don't just worship a God who's far away from us, We do worship a God who's hard to figure out, but we don't worship a God who's not given us a way to deal with our questions. God's ways are higher than our ways. No, we can't figure everything out. We want explanations when when things go wrong or when bad things happen. We want explanations, but usually the explanations that we come up with are our attempts to understand things. And we always need to remember that God's ways are higher than our ways. Just because we come up with an explanation that seems to make sense, and we may certainly see blessings that come out of bad things, that doesn't mean that we understand exactly how things happen or why they happened. When we're faced with pain or suffering or mystery, the one in whom we place our faith is one who's far beyond our complete comprehension. But he's one who was pierced for our transgressions, he was wounded for our iniquities, He's the one that God gave for us. The answer to our suffering is not trying to figure out the answer. The answer to our suffering is the one who is far beyond our comprehension but went to the cross and to the grave for us. When we face suffering, God hasn't given us answers. He gave us Jesus who suffered with us, suffered for us, died for us, and has risen for us. We're going to turn to Hebrews 2. The author of Hebrews uh, says this, I think, far better than I could. Hebrews 2. All right. Hebrews 2 10 to 18. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, "...should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family." So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, "...I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him." And he says, "...here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity... So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people." Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And finally, a bit more from Hebrews. Hebrews four fourteen to 16. We need to remember, when we face times of suffering or calamity, what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. Help us in our time of need. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. That is the one in whom we place our faith.